the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon. Welcome. Just about five minutes after 5 p.m. on the clock and uh, Craig Roberts on the radio welcoming you to another edition of Lifeline. If I sound a bit winded, you know, the old man <laughs> had to sprint from one end of the building to the other. At least, uh, at least we treat you to the second installment of the Nate <laughs> Niner Nate show here on KFAX, which, which almost, yes, we came perilously close to that happening. I was engrossed in conversation, which one is what to uh, to do from time to time, and I walked out of the house without a wristwatch today, so I have no clue that we were uh, at go time. So, any event, you know, if I don't show up for the show, is there no program? It's like the question of the ages. If a tree falls in the woods and there's no one there to hear it, does it really make a noise? In <laughs> any event, great to have you with us. We got a lot to talk about in the program this evening. You heard the news. Just a scant day ago, the Supreme Court, just before midnight Wednesday, um, it's not going to step in and, uh, at least for the moment, block the Texas law prohibiting most abortions in that state. We're going to get details on this from Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. He'll have uh, information for us coming up a little bit later on, so we'll get into that. But I want to begin first with the, this major paradigm shift that we're starting to see in our culture today. And I want to begin by saying language changes. You know, if it didn't, we'd all be running around speaking in King James language, right? Uh, down through the years, it morphs, it changes. Terms that were once considered to be slang are now so commonly accepted that they become a part of the, the normal lexicon of diction. And that's well and good. And that's quite normal. And I think it happens in every language. And, and to be sure, to some degrees, as we become more sensitive to one another, we begin to also change the way we address each other. Nothing wrong with that at all. The problem we're running into is that there is so much happening so fast in so many ways that I think a lot of people are not only confused and growing frustrated, but you almost are now having to hesitate that there is such hypersensitivity out there that you fear saying the wrong thing every time you open your mouth. For example, have you noticed an interesting trend I have in the last, I don't know, three, four, five months now? I will occasionally get emails from different parties, and at the bottom of the, uh, the signature line will be uh, the name of the individual, 
And then down below the signature line, in parenthesis, he, him, or she, her, uh, undoubtedly to help to direct us as to whether or not we are conversing with a man, a woman. (laughs) These days, you're not sure. I was in an event recently and a normal salutation that somebody my age taught as a child was prim and proper and respectful to refer to a gathering as ladies and gentlemen. And that used to be compliment. That used to be a recognition in a positive way. Today, on an increasing basis, that's an insult. And then you struggle with, well, do you, what do you say? Just you? Which seems to be altogether informal. And I wonder the way some foreign languages that have formal and more informal manners of speaking, how they're handling all of this in the new so-called woke culture, and whether or not it's going a bit too far. We'll spend some time talking about that now. James Robbins joins us, columnist for USA Today, senior fellow. Can we call him fellow? Senior person. The National Security Affairs at the American Foreign Policy Council. He holds his Ph.D. from Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. is the author of a number of best-selling books, including Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past. James, good to have you on the program. He's there because I can't hear him. Oh, I'm here. Ah, there you are. Okay, now I can okay, hear you. Okay, good. Sorry about that. I had, to, I had to drop another dime in the in the payphone here. <laughs> well, James, you heard my introduction. Uh, we're, we're we're venturing into territory that I think has an increasing number of Americans growing frustrated. I think you know, in polite company, we don't want to insult each other. We want to be mindful and respectful of one another. And yet this is becoming almost like walking on fiery coals, trying to ascertain what's permissible and what isn't permissible. And and language, even as I introduced you, are we going to reach a day where referring to someone as a senior fellow is all of a sudden now insulting? Give us a bit of your perspective on this. As I mentioned, you wrote a best-selling book on the very topic, and I know that recently, um, in a kind of a surreptitious manner, the National Recreation and Parks Association put out a guide as to how rangers and whatnot should refer to folks coming to visit. And um, it's pretty, uh, pretty stark and pretty revealing in terms of just how far this is going. Yeah, you know, it's it's sad, and, and in your uh, introductory remarks where you said that people have to hesitate before saying things, you know, I think that's actually part of it, that the people who have foisted this on us, uh, progressives mainly, they want us to hesitate, they want us to stop, they want us to not speak, you know, that, that hesitation that people f- uh, feel that kind of fear that maybe you'll say the wrong thing. Well, it's only the wrong thing because a a vocal minority has determined that it's the wrong thing, and then if you dare to make a mistake, then they're going to be, you know, inundating you with angry tweets and phone calls and, you know, calls for your resignation or whatever you do and things like this. So that, that hesitation that you mentioned, that's all part of the plan. That's what they want. 
What, what's scary is that this is happening so fast. You know, normally, as I indicated in my opening comments, James, language is something that, that evolves over time. And now, instead of allowing this to kind of work its way slowly into the American lexicon and, and become a natural part of speech, it's all being foisted upon us suddenly and all at once. And it's not a word or two. It's dozens of words in the dictionary to the point where, as I mentioned the other day, I made a reference to ladies and gentlemen, and I thought, is that inappropriate all of a sudden? It's almost as if you need a scorecard to keep up with all of this. And maybe you're on to something that a lot of this um, causing to pause or to trip people up, maybe a lot of that sense of tripping people up is quite intentional. Oh, I'm certain of that. And that you mentioned that um, that parks group, that outdoor group, um, you know, they say that you they don't want rangers and other, you know, park guides and people like that to use the word American because using the word American might offend somebody. Now, I mean, come on. This is the United States of America. The word American has been used since the 1600s to describe people who live here. And how is that neutral descriptor and a word that many of us take pride in, by the way, and I think should take pride in, but how is that offensive to people who, you know, uh, a ranger or someone, a guide or someone who's trying to explain something, which usually has something to do with history, you know, when you're at a national park or a Civil War battlefield or someplace like that, how is saying the word American supposed to be off limits? I don't even see how it could be. No, and again, it sets up almost a minefield now that as this continues to sort of work its way through uh, the, um, how should I say, the uh, the politically correct police, uh, all of a sudden, not only are you so hypersensitive to every particular offense to the point where people are just going to be terrified to speak at all, or what do we wind up being left with? I mean, we completely rewrite the dictionary and we're left with what? Words that essentially no longer have any meaning because we are concerned that somebody might all of a sudden take major offense to it? Well, yeah, we can go back to George Orwell if we want, who, you know, the 1984, the entire book was about that. That was one of the major themes of his book was how the, the party in power was destroying the language because it didn't want people to think. And to the extent that you have, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, a lot of it has to do with the words that you think in and, you know, the concepts that you want to think about. But his idea in the dystopia, uh, where the government controlled absolutely every facet of your life, was that if you destroyed the words, you would destroy the concepts, because then people couldn't really think of these concepts if they didn't have words to attach them to. And so that was the role of the party, was to keep destroying the English language, paring it down, getting rid of words they didn't like, until you were left with this much less interesting but tightly controlled language. And really, that's kind of the direction we've been moving in. And a language that all of a sudden perhaps uh, fails at its core job, communication. 
and suddenly oh, we're just terrified that we might offend somebody by calling them the wrong name. Now, you know, some words, as I suggest, drop out of use over time. In some ways, hopefully, we become a little bit more sensitive towards others, particularly when it comes to racial slang, for example. I mean, I, I think we can applaud moving away from uh, the common everyday use of pejorative terms. But we're not really talking about that here, are we? We're, we're, we're talking about something that really is a, a field beyond when all of a sudden you, you can't refer to people in any fashion that might even give a hint at what their gender might be. So then how do we wind up giving directions to someone to a bathroom um, if, if we can't refer as to which one it is we're talking about? Or do we uh, is this designed to completely wipe that out where eventually there, there is no recognition of gender whatsoever? Oh, well, I'll tell you, Craig, if someone approached me with that question, they're on their own. I'm not going down that minefield. <laughs> <laughs> you know? You wind up you just sending someone the wrong place, and then, you know, it's like, no, he sent me here. Like, oh, my God, I don't want that responsibility these days. <laughs> oh, and, and your response there, uh, James, really ideally helps to illustrate how dangerous this all potentially is, because what it winds up doing is, in our effort to become hypersensitive to everyone, everything out there, we now suddenly create an atmosphere where there's a failure to communicate in in some regards and and in other ways it's it's almost as if we're attempting to intentionally erase some of the history now you know there's good history there's bad history there's history we can be proud of there's history we can be ashamed of at the end of the day though it all comes under the, the the headline or the main moniker of it is history and I'm reminded of the notion that those who forget history are condemned to repeat it. And, and, and sadly, we're heading in such a direction where we say, well, if something bad happened that our forefathers action that they took that we are embarrassed by today, rather than acknowledging that and using it as an object lesson for future generations, we just simply erase it all. And at some point, you have to wonder if you erase history that you don't like, doesn't it come down then to a question of who's doing the erasing as to what kind of history survives and what kind of history is brushed aside? And is that not potentially dangerous for all of us? James Robbins with us today, columnist for USA Today, senior fellow at the National Security Affairs for American Foreign Policy Council. And um, we're going to take a time out, get you updated on some traffic here. We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There's an important lesson, I think, from history regarding the Babylonian period. And <laughs> the, we're all familiar, no doubt, with the Tower of Babel and that sense that that Language, when there is common understanding and acceptance, allows us to communicate with one another. And absent that, creates chaos that divides us. James Robbins is with us, columnist for USA Today. And James, I'm, I'm wondering from your perspective, is much of this designed to intentionally divide? What, what's the kind of end game here? I mean, it, it, clearly it goes far beyond the notion of just trying to be sensitive to each other. Oh, uh, no, I don't think, I, I don't even think that's what it is. I mean, it's, it's a way to use language as a weapon 
uh, to impose an agenda that goes, you know, change is a fundamental change, right, to our entire way of life. And there's a whole bureaucracy that supports it. I mean, let's take that um, first example that you gave of the um, the camp group, that outdoors group. I, I checked out that. Now, let me tell you, I'm an outdoors guy. I hiking, boating, fishing, you know, camping, what have you. I never heard of these people. Okay, so I don't know why they're suddenly part of our lives and telling us we can't use the word American. But I checked out their website, and they talked about how one of the pillars of their organization, and it's a private organization, they're just like a an interest group, but one of them is equity and inclusion. And I read in one of their blog posts where they said that it was important to do that because many of the funds that they get the uh, you know from governments or from other uh, donations in, insist that they have equity and inclusion as part of their program. So, for example, they got a big uh, a big grant from the city of Los Angeles to do something out there. But they were they had you know according to the grant they had to have all kinds of equity and inclusion language and programming and everything else. So once the government starts paying for this, and once you have bureaucrats who or people in positions of, you know, like the university's vice president of inclusion or something like that, well, in order to justify their continued funding and their continued, you know, employment, they have to keep thinking up even more new, interesting, and bizarre ideas to foist on the rest of us. And so, you know, it can't just be like, like you know, when we were growing up, equality, you know, ever treat everybody equally, which strikes me as the way to go, like, don't judge people by the color of their skin, but the content of their character, as Martin Luther King said. Let's do it that way. No, that's not good enough anymore. Now, you know, under equity, you have to have all kinds of other considerations coming into play that, you know, strike me as moving backwards in this whole quest to have everybody live together comfortably. Well, and if we're suddenly tripping over our shoelaces to make absolutely certain we don't, you know, use a pronoun that, unbeknownst to us, is, is you know, to that individual considered to be uh, heretical for some reason, and, and we begin to see language then instead of something that divides us, I'm sorry, that unites us, rather becomes something that divides us. And I know some listening to our conversation, James, will say, oh, boy, there they go. They're, they're, they're heading off to the, the deep end of the cliff. But I have to wonder if there can't ultimately be some pretty significant consequences, and not the good sort, to to allowing this level of political correctness around us to 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 be the order of the day. I mean, it, it, do, do, does this um, division, this wedge, being you know basically driven in between Americans, run the risk of of greater fallout later on that that <laughs> I hate to say it but could but could usher in the beginning of the end for this culture, this society, this nation? Well, I think it's very damaging to our culture and our nation. i I hope it doesn't usher in the end. Uh, it, it clearly it's damaging, clearly it's divisive. Um, even the way they use language. I mean, when they talk about inclusion, what they really mean is exclusion. Uh, when they talk about diversity, they're really pursuing the opposite of diversity, especially in terms of thinking. So I I find the whole thing, as, a, as I mentioned before, it's very Orwellian and very damaging. Uh, but I did see something from uh, British comedian Ricky Gervais today that 
made me take heart. And he was talking about how he hopes he lives to see the day when the woke people of today are being canceled by the youth of tomorrow. <laughs> so if this thing goes in a cycle, maybe we'll see that. Yeah, you got to believe that that's going to be... <laughs> Pardon me, the, the end result of all of this, undoubtedly. James Robbins, we appreciate the time and the insights. James, again, columnist for USA Today. And um, you can uh, get more information about his good work, certainly, by um, going online. His most recent book, Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past. I'm Craig Roberts. It's the Thursday. Thursday? That was a rush, wasn't it? The Wednesday edition of Lifeline. Let's not move things too fast, shall we? Lose a day in the week here. (laughs) We'll be back with more after an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. We are back to the conversation. Spirited conversation off the air as well here. Niner Nate and I kind of working through some of these, uh, some of the problems of the day. At any rate, let's, uh, let's turn a corner, shall we? The month of October is National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Remembrance Month. And it's important because these were children that were loved, whose lives got shut, cut, got cut short before they lived their life, but that doesn't in any way negate who they were or the love that the parents had for them. And I think it's sad because oftentimes, and you've run into this with couples, for example, that miscarry, that people around them are walking on eggshells. They don't want to mention anything because they know it's a tender spot. And yet maybe sometimes in, in, in the in the effort to try to be sensitive, we make another big error, and that is that we fail to acknowledge. And all of a sudden, it's as if that baby never existed, that that child wasn't loved, that there isn't a real loss or, or the grieving process that the parents are going through. And sadly, unlike a child that has lived, is given a name, gets sick, injured, whatever the case might be, and passes, we have a funeral Friends and family come from all around. They acknowledge the loss and the grief. We provide a sense of uh, moral support for that family, that they're able to to get a sense of closure and and able to um, have the healing benefit of acknowledgement. Sadly, though, in many cases, that doesn't take place at all. Let's get some insights. Becky Nordquist with us today, author of Before We Said Hello, Finding Hope After Pregnancy and Infant Loss. And Becky, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I think of what we do as a culture, as a society, as, as most cultures do, and that is that when there is a loss, um, there is a time of publicly acknowledged grief. We send sympathy cards. We attend memorial services. We send flowers. We verbally acknowledge the loss and the grief. And I think a lot of that not only provides support to the surviving family members, but an acknowledgement of the value that that life had. But in a lot of ways, um, a a family, a a couple who loses a child maybe through SIDS or or even earlier uh, through miscarriage, they really miss out on all of that. And I would imagine that in many ways that's got to make the the healing process, the recovery process, the grieving process all that more difficult. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, we talk often that um, about the fact that miscarriage and stillbirth, they're really a silent grief um, because often the only person that was fully aware of that life was the mother and the father, but truly the mom. You know, no one else got to see them smile or laugh. Um, and so it makes it difficult, difficult to know how to handle the situation. Often people don't understand why it takes so long. You know, why is it taking so long to get over this? You know, it's not like you had a baby in arms. People say some pretty incredibly um, careless things um, in just not knowing what to say, I think. But, yeah, it's it's a difficult thing. Um it isn't like other griefs. You know, I just finished speaking at the American Association of Christian Counselors World Conference in Orlando, and, you know, I had some counselors say, oh, so this is like grief. And I said, well, it is a form of grief, but it's not like your typical grief. Typical grief, um, you know, you're usually surrounded by family and friends, and there's, like you said, a lot of acknowledgement. You know, people bring in meals, they really care for you around the time of loss. Often with a miscarriage or a stillbirth, you know, you're going through it quite alone and um, for a variety of reasons. People don't know what to do, people don't know what to say, but the reality is, is most often with loss, both pregnancy and um, infant loss, you're still experiencing, just like if you'd have the baby and the baby lived, you're still going through recovery. You still need those people to come around you, um, even though you don't have a baby in arms. You know, so it's, it's a very difficult, it's very different, because the grief is invisible to others often. And so I would imagine a lot of parents feel almost as if, in a sense, they've been robbed twice. By that I mean mm-hmm. robbed of this life that they were excited about, that they were preparing for. Some parents have, you know, painted the bedroom, named the baby, appointed who the godparents will be, all of this, and then suddenly that life is taken from them. And along mm-hmm. with it, the ability to have the support there, the public acknowledgement of the grief, which in my mind must make in some respects, and I want to choose my words wisely here, because no parent wants to bury a child. It's supposed to be the other way around. You have your kids, you get old, they bury you. But when it happens the other way around, and then when it happens absent of the kind of, of acknowledgement and support that is typically there under other circumstances, uh, that's got to make a loss like this doubly painful. Um, well, certainly. I mean, there's that place of... Um you have all these hopes and dreams when you get pregnant and you have, you're expecting this little one. And we certainly had our whole nursery with our first loss. Um, and our last loss, we had the nursery ready. We had all the clothes and the drawers and everything. And, um, you know, so you're, you're going through the grief and the initial loss, but then you have all those secondary losses too. Like, okay, this is my regular due date or, you know, he would have been born on this day or my baby would be, you know, like our baby that we lost, Nicholas, he would be turning seven, you know. So you look at those times, you look at the empty place at the table, you look at the holidays where, um, you know, you'd normally, like we buy ornaments for our little ones and I always, I still buy an ornament even though Nicholas doesn't live here on earth with us. But So you have all those secondary losses and I think, you know, it's just like any death. People come around you right at the beginning, but it's that the first year is always the hardest for any kind of death. 
because you're remembering the, the hole that's left by that person. And, you know, there's, you know, often people will say, you know, well, you can always have another one. Or, you know, you have, you have other children. Be thankful with that. But, really? you know, I have to say that um, the question I would ask is, which one of your children would you choose to live without? Yeah, that, that, that's almost like saying to a grieving widow, well, you can always get married again. I mean, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> the, the exactly. things exactly. that people say, you know, that's why sometimes if you don't know what to say, don't say anything at all. Right. Or or the I've heard of quite a few people say, you know, well, God must have needed another angel. No, if God needed another angel, he would make more. He made this little person in his image, and it's this baby's not an angel. It's it's a soul created by God. And um, so there's just, I, you know, there's just a lot of um, things that I think it's well-meaning. Um, but there's nothing that anyone can say that will take away the grief. So often, you know, people ask me, you know, what, what can I say to my sister who just lost her baby? Or what do we, you know, what can I say to this friend of mine that just had a miscarriage? And, you know, there aren't words. There are not words. You're not going to be able to explain it away. There isn't anything you're going to say that's going to make them feel better about it. What's most important is presence. And, you know, Jesus was the perfect example of that. I mean, Lazarus, when he died, you know, they're like, Jesus, where were you? You know, and this wouldn't have happened. And But you know what Jesus did? He, he walked up on the scene, and he saw his friends crying, and he saw their tears, and he stopped everything. He didn't give a cliche or a sermon or truth. I mean, Scripture is truth, but there's a time for that. And Jesus exampled this so beautifully. He just stopped, and he sat down, and he wept. There wasn't any cliche thing, I'm going to try to make this go away, because he knew the gravity and what death meant was separation. And, um, you know, certainly there's a whole sermon on that one, but, you know, I think that's just the vision that he gave us, to be present, weep with, and weep for. Well, and, I, and, and I think really to, to distill what you're saying down in the simplest of terms, Becky, it's acknowledgement. And, uh-huh. and and maybe particularly in the scenario that we're discussing here, uh, where there is loss, uh, be it through miscarriage or in the early stages of an infant's life, um, you know, you're right. You're not going to find words that are going to bring hope for comfort. You can't. Most people cannot relate. And so trying to say some magic words that's going to ease the pain, probably not there. But the one thing that is there, as you're suggesting, is acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. And simply acknowledging that that was a baby that was loved and cherished, whether or not they were a part of the family for, you know, 10 weeks, 10 days, 10 minutes, yeah. doesn't make any difference. You know, there's still a loss there. There's pain there. There's grief there. And to acknowledge all of that and just be present in the moment, be available, um, I think is, is, is so much of what we really need to do and to not get caught up in trying to find the best words. As I said, sometimes it's just better to, to be quiet but be present. You talk about a lot of this. Um, there, there's a, a project that I want to mention, a daily devotional called Before We Said Hello. Take a moment and tell listeners about that. 
Well, it's a 30-day devotional um, stemming from a song that we recorded. I work with Music for the Soul that is based in Nashville. And, um, you know, it's 30 days of devotions, but the better part is it's there's stories from men and women who have gone through loss, and it's their story and their hope that they've found through their journey. Um, there's journaling space and questions for you to process through as you grieve. And it also includes two songs uh, through a QR code. Now there's four songs for Before We Said Hello Project, but um, there's two in the book that you get with the book. And uh, that's Before We Said Hello and Heaven's Playground. And I think the biggest thing that I love is that it just is proof that even though your baby may not have ever set foot physically on this earth. Their life has impact. It has impacted you. It has impacted the people around you. No matter how long, how many days, weeks, months, gestation age, that child's life matters. And it has changed your life. So, um, and that's kind of a, an underlying theme, I think, in the book, too, is just that, you know, these children all matter to God, and they have had impact here on Earth. And get more information about um, this wonderful um, 30-day devotional, again, written by my guest tonight, Becky Nordquist. Before We Said Hello, Finding Hope After Pregnancy and Infant Loss. You can get uh, more information online at Becky Nordquist, N-O-R-D-Q-U-I-S-T, BeckyNordquist.com. October, as I mentioned, is Observance of National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Remembrance. Becky, we appreciate you taking some time to uh, share from your own pain, your own life experience, and hopefully educate and encourage others. Before we said hello, finding hope after pregnancy and infant loss. I'm Craig Roberts, so time out as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All righty. Well, on Wednesday, just before midnight, Supreme Court refused to block the Texas law that prohibits most abortions in that state. This is just a day after it took effect, became the most a pro-life measure in the nation. Vote was five to four, not surprising. I bet you can guess who's on the four side of that equation. Let's uh, talk a bit about this and um, what message the court may be sending here, not only in terms of the impact of the Texas law, but other states in the future looking to enact similar laws. Joining us now is the host of Life Matters, heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. here on KFAX. He's a former California commissioner on aging, the author of a new book called The Evil Twins, Roe and Doe, How the Supreme Court Unleashed Medical Killing. He's Brian Johnston. Brian, is always good to have you with us. Um, interesting always. late at night, but the, uh, yeah. the Supreme Court spoke and said, no, we're not touching it, uh, undoubtedly much to the shock and chagrin of organizations like Planned Parenthood. That's right, Craig. It was just a week ago that we were talking about what's ahead, and then this happened that night, but then on Friday, we see that uh, they have the entire, they being the pro-abortion Democrat Party, and literally this current administration has publicly proclaimed they will use every 
aspect of the federal government to stop this Texas bill. Now, what happened on Friday is they applied for a new hearing that it be heard, and it looks like Judge Alito is going to allow it to be joined. We'll know more tomorrow because uh, I sent you a link. You may not have a chance to look at it, but the Supreme Court docket says that Judge Alito has asked Planned Parenthood for an explanation. They have to get it to him by tomorrow. The reason that's significant is the Supreme Court is hearing the Louisiana bill on December 1st. It looks the way they're setting it up because the federal government under the Biden administration says don't allow any pro-life laws, don't allow this Texas law. Okay, if you want us to look at it, then we're going to look at it. It looks like they may join both of them together to be heard on December the 1st. We're going to know tomorrow once Judge Alito rules and what he asked them that they needed to file um, a certification as to why we already know the entire federal government is being used to stop this Texas bill. But you very wisely have pointed out, well, the vote count may not be the one they want. So this is an extraordinary speeding up of the abortion debate. And we need to be ready because it could really, we won't know the result. It'll be argued on December 1st. And apparently both Louisiana and the Texas law will be argued on December 1st. That's the strong indication. We won't know the result until the end of session and they release the decision. But this is clearly going to be an explosive issue either way in and the 2022 elections. They're going to wind up having a difficult time making this argument before the court. I mean, if, if you consider first the fundamental premise that this was essentially abortion legalized, created out of practically thin air. I mean, the, 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 the notion that somehow this is constitutionally protected uh, by a long stretch of the imagination based on a right to privacy uh, was a field too far, certainly in 1973. So now for them to want to come back to the high court and argue that it's unconstitutional based on what, since there's no argument to suggest that abortion on demand was constitutional in the first place. Yeah, and i got to tell you, this, as you know, one of the themes of my program is, is we're in a battle of ideas right now. And it's critically important to examine what these ideas are. It's extraordinary to see the incredible lengths that those who have dysfunctional ideas are willing to go to force that on you and me. And it's important that I know our founders, and this is where we come from, that there are self-evident truths. There are certain facts which are objectively true, and that's what America's founders said. One of the first is that we've been given our lives as a gift, and the government has a duty to protect those lives that are right to life doesn't come from the government, it comes from God. But the government still has a duty to protect those lives, and that's a self-evident truth that our founders established. It's an objective fact. 
It's not just on the life issue, though. It's across the board. We are seeing an incredible attack on right thinking. Absurd assertions are being made about what an American is, what is American history, what is a racist, who is a racist. Things that are essentially slanders, but no, if you say it right with enough emotion and it's just not fair, now it's true, and we need to change all of our laws because of that. Well, that has gone, that really was the case with abortion. The assertions that were made were not based in reality. And in the book, as you know, we go into that. Even Justice Blackman said that this assertion that you can control your own body, that is not the case. Now, the media doesn't tell you that, but he said that in Roe v. Wade. This is not about a woman's right to control her own body. But the media doesn't tell you that. So the absurdity of abortion on demand is not examined. And really what Roe did, Roe and Doe, is it didn't give, it gave women the right to ask, but the authority was given entirely to the abortionist. And that's the bottom line issue. Medicine was attacked in 73. Before January 22nd of 73, doctors didn't kill anybody, much less babies. Every state had laws regarding killing babies. And every state said, no, nah, no, nah, we got to draw the line. Every state. When all of those state laws are thrown out, and most importantly for all of us, when the Hippocratic Oath was thrown out, doctors can kill babies whenever they feel like it, because that's what Doe said. That altered our society. And if we don't look at the impact of that idea... We're not going to understand this pattern. Well, and undoubtedly, as we look at things like the content of the particular law in Texas, where uh, for violation of same, patients can't be sued. However, doctors and staff can be, because it goes to the heart of the very question that you raise, and that is that while we've spent a lot of time talking about Roe versus Wade, Doe versus Bolton, um, is if we had if we had to lay blame at the feet of one of these two decisions, uh, the lion's share would rest not with Roe v. Wade, but rather with Doe v. Bolton. That, as Brian points out in his new book, The Evil Twins, Roe and Doe: How the Supreme Court Unleashed Medical Killing. Then, in effect, one of the things that has them concerned is that a law like the Texas law specifically deals with. The, 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 the hypocritical inconsistencies of the Supreme Court decision in Doe v. Bolton that got us into this mess in the first place. Brian Johnston goes into great more detail on his program, Life Matters, Saturday mornings, 11 a.m., right here on KFAX. Lots of resources, information, and, of course, you can get details by tuning in Saturdays at 11 or checking out the California Pro-Life Council's website, californiaprolife.org. That's californiaprolife.org. The book, Evil Twins, Roe and Doe, How the Supreme Court Unleashed Medical Killing, one of the most insightful and comprehensive books on the topic probably ever published heretofore. And you can get that through Amazon.com, written by our good friend, Brian Johnston. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.